Well, tonight, as we have already said, we're going to go to uh, Ephesians, and we're going to be in Ephesians for the next uh, number of weeks. Uh, And so you can read ahead if you have some time, and uh, if you do happen to miss, maybe you're visiting with us this evening, or maybe you're watching along online, and and you might end up missing a a little part of our series. You can pick that up online. You can pick it up on our podcast. Uh, We would love to be able to study this right through together. And so tonight we're in Ephesians. If you're reading from a page or from a pew Bible, you'll find this on page 1173. It's good to be able to read along together. And so Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to work through this book and this letter slowly over the next number of weeks, and there's much here that will give our hearts reason to rejoice. So Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one who in the one He loves. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ, proposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we, who were first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Amen. And we thank God for His Word to us. The grass willers and the flower will fade, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. Well, do let's take our Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We are, as John said, starting this uh, book this evening. Uh, We're hoping to 
probably do about half of it between now and the summer, and then maybe pick it up again uh, after the summer. A fantastic uh, book, and uh, we're probably just going to do the first few verses uh, this evening. Let me tell you about a, a lady called Thelma Howard. Uh, she was for years the, the maid uh, uh, servant of, of Walt and Lillian Disney. And every Christmas, Walt used to give her a Christmas present. She opened it eagerly, and uh, he, she found inside some share certificates in, in the Disney Corporation, and uh, Thelma wasn't particularly uh, au fait with what that meant, and she was too polite to say how disappointed she was, and she stuffed them in her bottom drawer. She eventually retired. Sadly, she lived out her later years in some poverty, and she died in 1981, and her possessions were sorted out, and they found all these share certificates. She was estimated to be worth $6 million at that point. Terrible thing to have resources and not know it, to be rich beyond your, your dreams and yet live like a, a pauper. It, it's arguably even worse if you know what you have and then you don't use it. A lady called Hetty Green was born in 1834, known as America's most famous miser. She barely spent any cash on anything, including clothing and food. She dodged taxes. She collected interest on anything she lent out. She often ate cold porridge because she didn't want to turn on the gas. Um, and her son had a serious leg infection. She delayed so long trying to find him a free clinic that uh, he had to have part of his leg amputated. When she died in 1916, she was estimated to be worth then $100 million. And that was when $100 million was worth something. And that made her one of the richest people in America at that time. Pretty tragic story. She, she knew what she had, but she didn't draw upon it. And these are stories that lead us into the book of Ephesians that we're starting. Here Paul says in verse 3, you notice, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. Now, what's that worth? Six million dollars? Hundred million dollars? Every spiritual blessing. Tonight, if you're, you're a Christian, this is speaking of you. God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Christ, every one. We, we think of those stories, and we imagine being that rich, but, but actually we are spiritual billionaires. There's, there's nothing that God has left out. God does not say, well, here are a whole range of spiritual blessings that I could give to my people. I, I'll pick a selection, maybe the best ones. Not at all. He, 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 he gives them all, every spiritual blessing. And our prayer is, as we get to grips with this book, that we will grasp just how much God has blessed us in Christ. And we'll see how that works out. Now, probably that's unrealistic. I'm not sure that we're even capable of grasping how much God has blessed us in Christ, but we, that we will be able to grasp as much as we possibly can how much God has blessed us in Christ. Now, as I said, we're just really introducing this letter this evening. Maybe one of the things that we would really value is if, as a congregation, we get to know this letter, maybe we could commit to reading it through every week, for example, over the next period. Maybe we could read a commentary alongside it. John Stott's little Bible Speaks Today commentary is really superb. So are James Montgomery Boyce's sermons on this book. Uh, some of us might have the sort of pliable minds 
that would allow us to learn parts of it, learn large chunks of it. Uh, maybe you have one of those apps on your phone that if you press a little triangle button, it will read it to you. It takes about, I tried this, it takes about three minutes to read a chapter, to have a chapter read to you. So you could have it all read to you in the shower every morning, 18 minutes. You would know it by July, and you'd be incredibly clean. <laughs> and I'm, I'm suggesting that because to have this sort of truth at our, our mental fingertips, as it were, would just be so helpful for us. I heard someone this week uh, say hi as a pastor. He, he, he got a phone call just as he was about to head off to speak to a conference somewhere, and it was a, a friend, a church member who was having a, a, a spiritual crisis, and he said, I really need to see you and talk this through. He said, look, and the, and the pastor said, I, I cannot, I'm, I'm heading, I'm literally about to, to head to the airport. I'll see you when I get back. And the guy said, well, well, what should I do until then? And he said, really off the top of his head, he said, read Ephesians every day until I get back. And he came back after a week, and there was a message on his desk that said, Bill called, he doesn't need to see you anymore. All is well. Well, why is that? Because God had let him see through this book that he'd been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. So, so get it into our hearts and, and, and lives. Let, let's look at the opening verses. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you, uh, sorry, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, a few things as far as introduction is concerned. Let's take the first word, Paul. Paul, this is one of Paul's letters. He identifies himself as an apostle. It means sent one, but, but it refers especially to those whom Jesus specially commissioned to this office. There are no apostles today. There are people who call themselves apostles, but there are no apostles today. To be an apostle in this biblical sense, you needed to have seen the risen Lord Jesus. There were only ever 14 people who could genuinely call themselves apostles. There were the original 12 disciples. One of those was Judas. When Judas hung himself, the disciples in Acts chapter 1 set aside Matthias to uh, replace him. So, that takes us up to 13. And then Jesus met Paul on the Damascus Road and commissioned him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. So the 12, if you like, sort of representing the fullness of God's Jewish people. And then there's a spilling over into this special uh, role for the gospel work to go to the Gentiles through Paul. So, so it's, it's on their teaching that the, the church is built, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, as the Bible says, because they're the ones who co communicate and articulate the gospel message, and it is their teaching which essentially uh, comprises the New Testament. And so, when Paul is introducing himself here at the beginning of this letter, and in so many other places, of course, as well, he is emphasizing that he speaks with authority. He's been set apart by the Lord to communicate the truth of the Lord Jesus to the church of the Lord Jesus. It's implying that what follows, of course, is therefore not just good advice or something to, to weigh up as, as if uh, to say, well, I'll get a nugget in here somewhere. But it is the Word of God to be believed, to be taken in, and to be applied, to be lived out. There's a little bit of personal testimony in here as well. One of the things that we see in these introductions, which this first two verses are, one of the things that we characteristics see in these introductions is that they often contain little seeds that then grow into themes. 
that, that are picked up through uh, the, the rest of the letter. And, and it's here too, by the will of God. Now, we've been reading our way through Acts as a congregation, and we know what, what Paul is, is hinting at here. We, we have the story of Paul's conversion three times in Acts. Once he tells it himself, and then twice he communicates that story to, uh, to other people. And you know how that story is. It's a profound experience for Paul. He, he is absolutely steeped in Judaism. He's as involved as he could be. He is zealous. He hates Christians. He devotes himself to the wiping out of this sect. He, he watches on at Stephen's stoning. He pursues Christians and hauls them off to prison. And then the Lord steps in. He's not searching for God. He's not a seeker. He's opposed to the Lord. He's persecuting him, as Jesus says. And so he says, I'm an apostle. How did I get to be an apostle? Do you know what? It was by the will of God. God did it. This was not a career development. I was not headhunted by an agency. God stepped in, and he did it. And it's one of the themes that we're going to see as we go through this letter all being well, is, is, as we were thinking about this morning, the sovereignty of God, especially the sovereignty of God and salvation. He is the God who, who comes to us, not the other way around. And whenever we get the, 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 the sort of the DNA of this letter into our hearts and our, into our minds, and we're asked the question, well, why are you a Christian? Our first instinct will be, just almost before we even think about it, whoa, God did it. God saved me. God brought me to himself. And that sovereignty of God is reflected here in how Paul introduces himself. Paul, an apostle, by the will of God. And then we see who it's to, the, the Ephesians, uh, to Ephesus, to the saints who are in Ephesus to the who and are faithful in Christ Jesus. There's lots we could say here, but uh, we've been helped by the fact that again, not all that long ago, we saw in Acts the account of uh, Paul visiting Ephesus. It's on his uh, missionary journey, a second missionary journey. He stays there uh, with them. The, the longest he stays anywhere with his journeys, he's, he's nearly there three years, and, and they are people with a, a tremendous privilege. Ephesus is a very important city. It's uh, the sixth largest city in the known world at this time. It has a population of about a quarter of a million people. One of the ways that the scholars estimate the population of these ancient Roman cities is by counting the number of seats in the amphitheater, you know, the big curved theaters. And generally, the amphitheaters apparently were designed to take a tenth of the population of the city. And so they count up the seats, in Ephesus, it holds 25,000 people. You can go to its ruins. You can sit in it today. It's where all the people gathered and, and, and cried out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I, I've, I've sat in that theater. Some of you have sat in that theater. And, and there's 25,000 seats there, and, and therefore a quarter of a million people. Ephesus was, was wealthy. It was a port then. It was a center for trade. It was multicultural. There were people there from all over the Mediterranean. And it was the center, as we said, of the worship of Diana or Artemis. Her temple was just outside the city. It was a huge building, one of the largest religious buildings in the world at that time, one of the wonders of the world. And pilgrims for Diana or Artemis came from far and near to worship her. 
and it was an occult center as well. Remember, in Acts, we saw that there were the, the, the people, God worked, in, in, especially in the lives of the believers, and they began to, to burn those occultish books and scrolls that they had. And eventually, there was a riot. They were, they were really a, a learned people as well. That, that picture of Ephesus that's on our title slide as well, that's the, the Library of Celsus, it, it, one of the, the, the premier libraries in the world at that time, specially constructed to be able to store scrolls and to keep them uh, from, from deteriorating as well. So, so, here in the midst of this prosperous, diverse, immoral city, because it was an immoral city, there was a church, actually probably a network of, of little house churches that had developed links together and, and developed links then out into the little churches in the surrounding area. And what a place it is for a church to take root. There are, there are lots of challenges today, aren't there, about where our world is going. We feel that. Some of us who are older are, are absolutely uh, disoriented by it. And one of the things that we should know is that our society is becoming increasingly like the society of the first century. And what was that society? Well, it was the very society in which the church took root and turned that world upside down. And of course, one of the things that that means for us is that if we want to know how to live in a society like ours and like ours is increasingly becoming, well, the New Testament doesn't need that much translation, does it? It's pretty easy to see its relevance. We'll see that too. So, so, so Paul is writing to these Christians in Ephesus, and he's doing so, we think, from prison in Rome about six years after he had been with them. And you see what he calls them. He calls them the, the saints in Ephesus, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, who's that referring to? Well, is this some special class of Christian? Some of us perhaps have grown up in uh, church traditions where a saint was someone that the church got together and decided because they performed a miracle that could be attested that they could be given the name saint. Is that it? No, that's not it. Is it, as, as sometimes Christian people use the term, as the society uses the term, a Christian of a particular caliber, you know, oh, old, old Joe, he's, he's such a saint, like in the old Labrador, he's such a, he's such a saint, you know. But it's not that sort of word that, that, that donates, first of all, a, a, a quality. It really means a position. It means set apart, related to the word sanctify, so, so holy, set apart for, for a special use. We, we understand this, don't we, that, that whenever God brings you to Himself, He, he sets you apart. He, he takes you out. He, he sets you apart for Himself. And he doesn't, he doesn't save these people because they are different, but He sets them apart, and, and He works in them then to make them different. You see also that they're called the faithful in Christ Jesus. Faithful has a sort of a, a double meaning here. They're, they're full of faith in that they've placed their faith in the Lord Jesus. That's how they've become Christians. They've trusted Jesus, continue to do that. But they also have that sense of them keeping going. They, they continue to stand. 
God has brought them to Himself. He set them apart, and they're, they're acting on that, and they're standing for Him, and they continue to do so. So, the saints, you see, are, are every believer, every believer in Ephesus, to the saints, the holy ones in Ephesus. I don't know if you, you feel as you've come into church tonight that if you're a Christian, you're a saint, that you're a holy one according to the designation of God. And that again, according to the designation of God, you're, you're the faithful in Christ Jesus. It's what the Bible says we are. Paul talks about being in Christ many times within this book. It's a big, big theme, union with Christ. And we're going to see more of that where, where uh, the saints who are in Christ Jesus, we're the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, Here's something that is, is, I find hugely helpful. Many people have pointed out that these Ephesian believers, in the way that they are introduced here, have a sort of a double residence. You know how you people aspire to today, you know, have a double residence. You want to ha have a house, and then you want to have a holiday house. Well, it's a bit like that. Well, it's not really like that at all. But, but, but you have two addresses. And, and, and here, you see, John Stott speaks about them having two homes. They're in Christ... And at the same time, they're in Ephesus. I think we have a, a slide for that. In Christ and in Ephesus. See, that they've got a double, sort of a double postcode. And on the one hand, you see they're in Christ and they have every spiritual blessing. In fact, if you skip over to chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says that they are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Now, there's an amazing postcode to have, isn't it? You're in Christ you've got a, a seat around the table with Christ in heaven. Tremendous position, brought into His kingdom. But at the same time, they're in Ephesus. Ephesus with its prosperity, its materialism, with its immorality and its pagan worship, with its occult practices, and so on and so on. So, they, you see, they, they, they live in these these two worlds, these two kingdoms. And this is true, brothers and sisters, for us also. We are in two worlds. We are the saints in Lurgan or wherever, and we are the faithful in Christ Jesus. We have two homes. John Stott puts it like this. He's beautifully uh, concise. He says, many of our Spiritual troubles arise from our failure to remember that we are citizens of two kingdoms. We tend either to pursue Christ and withdraw from the world, or to become preoccupied with the world and forget that we are also in Christ. It's easy to feel that we're in Christ here, perhaps. By about Wednesday, we feel as if the only place we are is in Lurgan. Now, remember we said that the, the, the greetings of Paul's letters often contain these little seeds that, that sort of grow and develop through uh, the letter. And, and, and this idea of two worlds is actually something that, that in many ways sort of defines the rest of the letter. Uh, many of Paul's letters contain, if you were to, to put them into two sort of categories, they contain both doctrine, teaching, doctrine, and duty. Things we are to know and things we are to do. Teaching that tells us who we are and what Christ has done. And exhortation that tells us what that should mean in our lives. Doctrine and duty. 
And that's particularly clear here. The book has six chapters, and it's pretty much divided into two. So chapters one to three are the doctrines that tell us who we are in Christ. This is what Jesus has done for you. And then chapters four to six primarily tell us about our duty. There's a bit of overlap and interweaving and so on, but but pretty much that's the way it is. Chapters four to six tell us about our duty. This is how you're to live. So, for example, you can see chapter four, verse one. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. You see what Paul's saying? He says, here's the calling you've received. Here's what God has done for you. Here's how He's provided for you in Christ. He's brought you to Himself. Now, live it out. Get on with it. We've seen the truth. Here's the outworking of the truth in your life. Here's what it means to be in Christ, chapters 1 to 3. Here's what being in Christ means in Ephesus, chapters 4 to 6. And and having both of these, you see, is hugely, hugely important. Some of us have, have been in in sermons, or maybe even we've been brought up in churches or spent time in churches where, where, where the preacher only gives you four to six. It only gives you duty. He say something like this, now, Christian people, here you are. You're to go out into the world, and this is what you're to do, and this is what you're not to do, and this is what you're to do, and this is what you're not to do, and this is what you're to do, and this is what you're not to do. And by the time that you walk out the door, you feel this huge burden on your shoulders and say, well, I know what to do and what not to do, but how am I ever going to do this? How how am I ever going to fulfill my my, my duty? All I have is a a list of requirements and no resources. It gets pretty tiring after a while. It's like it's like facing all of these needs, but, but thinking like some of our, 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 our uh, ladies that we were talking about this at the start, that we, we, we think we've nothing in the bank, nothing with which to meet the need. And maybe some of us have spent time in churches or sermons where, 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 where it's all doctrine. And we think, well, that's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's fascinating. But I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how that works out in my life. I don't know what relevance it has whenever I go into work tomorrow and I I speak to my skeptical friend or I talk to my teenager about the things that they're facing or, or, or whatever it might be. That's a bit like having money in the bank and not knowing how to spend it. And the truth is, you see, we, we know this, don't we? We have both tremendous needs, tremendous duties to perform, but also tremendous resources. Doctrine and duty go together. In fact, duty, our duties really depend upon our doctrines. That's the order we see here. You see it's chapters 1 to 3 of the doctrine, and then it moves into the therefore. Here's what you are, 1 to 3. Therefore, here's what you're to do. The duty follows the doctrine, you see. I remember as a young student, hearing Sinclair Ferguson speaking on this. He was speaking actually in Romans, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Same pattern. Paul spends 11 chapters of Romans talking about what God has done for us in Christ and bringing us to Himself. And then he says, therefore, brothers, I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And he goes on to unpack what that should look like. And I remember Sinclair Ferguson with his tremendous diction and his giant brain, 
um, saying that with Paul, the imperatives precede the indicatives. And I had to go home and look it up to see what it was. Those of you who know grammar will know that. The indicatives, those, those words that tell us who we are and what we are, they come before the imperatives that tell us what we're to do. Now, why do I tell you something that 35 years ago I heard and didn't understand and had to look it up? Because you know what? When I looked it up, I've never forgotten it in 35 years. Doctrine leads to duty, and duty depends on doctrine, and we'll see that. Well, that's verse 1. Uh, we've got a little bit more to go. Um, we could go into similar detail in verse 2. Uh, peace, traditional greeting in ancient letters. Here it's grace and peace, because grace has been won through Christ, sent by God the Father, entirely a work of grace. These are themes that will develop as well. Let's just say a word about the beginning of the next section, because the letter begins with praise, and John's going to unpack this next section next week. But the letter begins with praise. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. You, you, you might know, but hey, this is one of the great sentences in the Bible. It runs from chapter 1, verse 3, to chapter 1, verse 14. It's one huge, long sentence. Paul often dictated his letter to an amanuensis, a scribe. And you can just imagine this poor scribe running out of ink and saying, Paul, just slow down. Goodness, I, I, I can't get all of this down. But Paul's just in flow. He's, he, he's, he's beginning to praise God for, for what he has done. And he just can't stop. And as I said, we're, we're going to really begin to look at this uh, next week, but, but let's just look at one thing that should cause our hearts to rise within us. It's a big theme within Ephesians, especially at the beginning. Blessed be God because He has what? How would you answer that? What do you give thanks for most often? For your food, for your health, for some circumstantial providence, those are all good things. And Paul begins by saying, blessed be God for the blessings He has given us, bringing, him to, bringing us to Himself to bring us into His family for His glory, for personal holiness. Those blessings are experienced. Why are they experienced? Well, we see it here. Because of His sovereign, loving choice. His sovereign, loving choice. You see, you see these Ephesian brothers and sisters were we're in a hugely vulnerable position. This was a, a, a pressurized environment, a cosmopolitan city. They, they felt like small fry in a big pond. They felt that the culture was against them. It was. They felt the, the spiritual oppression of the occult normality around them. And they must have thought at times, am I going to be able to keep going here? 
will I be a Christian this time next year? I'm just thinking about going into the office. It's, it's so, it's so difficult. If those people knew what I really believed, I'd be out in a moment. Am I going to be able to keep going? What do you need to know in that circumstance? Well, part of what you need to know is that God is at work in your life, but actually that God has been at work in your life and God started the work in your life. You see where verse 3 says, when God started the work in your life, chosen before the creation of the world. God's people existed in his mind before they ever existed on earth. Those who would be gathered around the throne in Revelation had been seen in the mind of God before anything came to be. How encouraging this should be for you if you're a Christian tonight. The message paraphrase puts it like this. You were on God's mind before you ever came to be or ever came to him. Some people have tried to twist the idea of God's choice and make it into some sort of ugly thing as if it damages God's character. But, but here it's clear that it is love that moves God to choose. You see in verse 4, in love he predestined. Predestined is just a, a, another word for a, 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 an early choice, a, a, a first choice. Chose how things would work out. And the idea of God's choosing is, is always linked to his loving character. It's, 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 it's not, if he was not love, then there would be no people because he is love. He chooses a people. In fact, whenever we ask God, well, why did you choose me? That, that's all that we really get. The, the, the reason that God gives is, is not because of something in us. You know, we, we, we don't do it this way. We, we, you know, we go to choose a puppy and they're all fluffy and lovely and they're but we choose the really cute one, don't we? Or maybe the really runty one, you know, if we're that sort of person. And then we regret it for 12 years afterward. But, but God's choice is not rooted in the puppies. It's rooted in Him. Why does He choose? Because He, he loves. And no doubt many of us come here tonight with burdens and worries. Doesn't it encourage us to lift up our minds and see the great sweep of eternity and see that you're not an accident? And the fact that you can sit here tonight and say, I am his and he is mine, that, that, that that's not an accident. Before the world began, he, he thought of you. You know what that means? That means before there were mountains, he thought of you. Before there were stars, he thought of you. You look tonight. If you can see stars tonight, you look up and say, before those stars were there, I was on God's mind. And so therefore, God knows what you're going home to. And he knows what you're going into tomorrow. And he knows what lies ahead. Because you're here by God's sovereign choice. And that's part of the spiritual blessing. It's got to lead somewhere. It's not just to help you sleep at night, but it should. But once it gets into your heart, then you'll begin to say, 
Oh, Lord, thank you. Now, what is it that I do in response to all of your love for me? Ephesians. It's going to be a treat. Read it. Listen to it in the shower or wherever. Get it into your head and your heart, and we will not be the losers.